Reformed Church. Just a quick note on this. So, when the Lord adds something to you physically, I understand that that's not like the blessing from God, which we've been talking about, right? That the wealth itself is corruptible. And because wealth is corruptible, God would never give you wealth as a blessing, right? Now, people that are just joining us may be confused by that because I'm teaching a, a thing called power to wealth. Um, but we know that, right? That the wealth itself is not the blessing. It's okay, though, to thank God when he adds wealth. Because thanking God isn't saying, this is my inheritance, Lord, and this is what you have given me as my inheritance. Actually, we, we know quite the contrary, right? That the Lord has redeemed us from this physical world and all the wealth that's in it, but not given it to us as an inheritance. But it's, it's actually not even okay to thank God. It's good to thank God when he adds something to you because um, there's precedent for that in Scripture, first of all. Um, but also, you're just giving God credit. You're thanking God and saying, I acknowledge that you did that, Lord. And it's important to thank God for the things that you know, you know that, one, that Jesus provided, but also if the Lord manifests something through you, and part of that manifestation, again, isn't the wealth itself, but the power to get it. And if power on God's behalf adds something to you, you know, this, for instance, there's nothing wrong with, like, praying for your food. If you are under the conviction that, hey, the food I'm eating right now, Lord, I thank you that you add all wealth to me, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Now, the food is not the blessing from God, first of all, right? Neither is any physical thing. Not to mention the fact that you don't need to pray for your food every time you eat, just so you know. And that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But there is nothing, not a single verse in Scripture, that makes food out to be some unique thing that you have to pray for each time versus if someone gives you a gift, a birthday present, you know, you get a little extra money uh, in, your, in your tax refund or whatever. Like, you, if you were going to pray for food every time, then why don't you pray for every other physical thing that you ever get every single time? Uh, it, because God doesn't make anything unique about food, right? There's nothing special about food that you have to thank God for that every time you sit down to eat, but then snacks are okay. Like, the, we can have a pass on snacks, right? Or, or drinks. If you take a drink, you don't thank God every time you take a drink. And as silly as that sounds, because obviously it's silly, like, we do that. I used to do that, right? Where you sit down for a meal. Oh, if someone didn't pray for food, you'd be seriously offended. But if someone goes to the fridge and gets a glass of water and drinks it and doesn't pray for it, then you'd be okay with it. We just kind of made that up. We really did. Well, there's places where Jesus prayed over the food. And there is. And, and specifically, there are places where Jesus didn't even thank God, but just more blessed the food um, to multiply it, for instance, or whatever that may be. But Jesus thanked God for a lot of things. Like, there's nothing special about food that you have to pray for your food every time. When I eat, just so you know, just if you want to further the offense here, when I sit down to, pray, to, 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 to eat, I don't pray for my food on the usual. I just eat it. If I, I, pray for it when, I pray for anything and thank God for anything as it comes to my mind. If I want to thank God for providing such and such a thing, I pray for it. That's kind of the way Jesus did it. He just kind of prayed as the Lord led him to pray for something and say, oh, thank you, Lord, for doing that. But... I don't make some special routine for food because there's no special exceptions in Scripture for food versus uh, someone gave you a birthday card and there's money in it. Why don't you look to heaven each time and say, oh, thank you, Father, for this. And then next present, oh, thank you, Father, for this. And like, again, and then we make exceptions for snacks and drinks. And it's, it's clearly we're not doing anything out of any biblical standard. Um, so as much as that may seem kind of silly to even mention, it's, it's really not. <laughs> the reason why it's not is because the church takes it seriously. It's a silly concept in and of itself, but when the church takes anything seriously that shouldn't be taken seriously, um, then you got a problem on your hands, right? We just take the things seriously that the Lord has showed us, the things the Lord has taught us. But as far as the traditions of men and, oh, every time you sit down, uh, again, you, you would probably be pretty offended at a lot of our gatherings if we were going to sit down and eat and we don't have a formal time of thanks. But uh, like I said, if you're going to do it for food, then do it for every single possible thing that you ever receive. Nothing special about food. Anyway. With all that said, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with thanking God for something, despite the fact that it's not the blessing, right? That's good to do that. Give God credit. If you think God manifested something, you know, if someone comes up here right now and I lay hands on them and I say, in Jesus' name, be healed, boom, and they're healed. I understand that's only a manifestation of what I have in Christ, right? Um, that's obviously a little different than wealth, because wealth isn't the blessing of God while healing is. But if I lay hands on somebody, I, it, it would serve me and everybody else well to say, thank you, Jesus, for that, because... I need to give him credit. So everyone looks at that and says, oh, that wasn't Pastor Mike. That was, that was the Lord that did that. That was the Lord that manifested that. So thanking God is giving him credit for something that he did. And anything God does, he should get credit for, right? So if he adds something to you, you don't thank him like the wealth is the blessing, but you say, hey, thank you for this. Thank you for the food. Thank you for whatever it is at the time. 
uh, oh, you know, I needed a car, and thank you, Lord, you know, somebody gave me a car, and, you know, thank you for, thank you for that, Lord. I'm just giving the Lord credit for something that I recognize he did, right? So hopefully that all makes sense. Um, with all that, that said, um, tonight I want to talk about some misconceptions about poverty, um, because I think that probably a lot of people don't agree with poverty, just because I don't think anyone really likes poverty. The Bible says that no man ever hated his own flesh. Um, even people that do things, you know, against their flesh, like, you know, there are people that cut themselves, or there are people that, you know, neglect their body in different ways um, for religious purposes. There are people that, um, you know, again, you could be some monk in a monastery, and you neglect any luxury, and you're going to go out and, you know, uh, and, and, and eat one meal a day, or eat very little, and uh, deprive yourself, and we kind of think that that's godly. Um, but people don't do that because they like it, they do it for some other reason. Like when people cut themselves, it's not because they hate their flesh. They do it actually out of pain relief lots of times. They try to relieve an emotional pain by, uh, by inflicting physical pain on themselves. So it's actually, the Bible says no one hates their flesh. No one likes to neglect their flesh and not take care of it. People want to take care of their flesh. Um, and so poverty, I don't think it's a real popular thing in the church or anywhere that people like poverty where people are, are like, yeah, I like not having enough for my necessities. I like not having enough, obviously, to give also, but even just for our necessities. I, I like not having enough. I like, you know, um, not having enough to eat or not enough clothing or whatever that may be. So I don't think that poverty necessarily is something that people, if they ask themselves that they want to go through poverty and they want to be poor. But, but there is in the church absolutely in the church and in the world, this notion that having less is more godly, that neglecting yourself in any way, including like, for instance, um, being poor, that that somehow has like this, this flavor of, of godliness or, or, you know, admiration in that. Like that's somehow admirable, admirable in some kind of way to, to be poor. And even if we don't say poor, it's kind of like to have less, that that's somehow better. Now, We've been through in this series for a whole lot of reasons why being wealthy, if wealth is in the right person's hands, if it's being used correctly and godly, right, and that's a huge caveat there, but as long as it's being used by someone who knows the Lord and someone who um, is using it for godly purposes and with wisdom, you know what? Wealth is a good thing and not only a good thing to have, but the Bible says that, for instance, right, the Bible said that we would have all sufficiency in all things and have an abundance and an access for every good work. We've been over those reasons too, right? Which I also made mention in the I don't believe in that prosperity stuff message. I taught a message called I don't believe in that prosperity stuff. So if you have someone that's kind of pushes against the concept of wealth in general, that's a good one. To, that's a sort of all-encompassing teaching that is meant to be shared. Um, but even in that teaching, I just talked about how, you know, you can't give. If you don't have an excess of wealth, you can't give. You simply can't, right? Um, and the Bible says that. God gives you an abundance of physical things so that you are able to give as well. So if you want to go through life and never be able to give, well then, you know, just have your needs met or maybe even a little less. So we've been through those things before where, you know, just kind of undoing that concept of having less means that's more godly or, or having less is somehow better for a born-again believer. Again, there is, there's, there's conflict there with Scripture when it comes to giving because you cannot give what you don't have right? Like, that should just make sense. If I don't have extra beyond my necessities, what exactly am I giving? I'm going to give the, the you know, the, uh, the example I gave was, oh, someone's behind on their rent, so I'm going to help them, and then what, not pay my rent because I'm paying their rent? Or I'm going to take someone, care of someone else's children and take food out of my own children's mouth and not take care of them? Or like, we clearly know. Your necessities, at the very least, have to be met, and then if you want to give something, you're going to have to have more than that, right? That's called wealth, just so you know. Like, ding, that's, that's, what we just, I just described is called wealth. That's called prospering financially, when you have more than you need. Like, I don't see where exactly the issue is with that. Like, oh, I don't believe in having more than I need. Well, what are you giving? Like, so there's that conflict, obviously, as well. But then there's just the thing in general, that poverty has this, like, again, this, this, this piety, this, this godly thing in people's minds. And, and don't even tell me that it doesn't, that it doesn't sort of have this sympathetic place in our hearts many times, or an admirable thing in our hearts many times. You watch movies, you know, you watch a Hallmark movie, which uh, I, we haven't watched those in a long time because they've gotten a little crazy. But you watch a Hallmark movie, 
And, uh, you know, they're all the same, but, well, these days they're not the same. And, uh, yeah, you just, I'm laughing because, yeah, everyone here doesn't want to admit that they watch Hallmark movies, but, like, everybody has, right? Um, again, these days they've been getting a little crazy, but you know, it's like, the guy that doesn't have as much money is the good guy, and the guy that has more money is the bad guy. And that's not for no reason, just so you know. That is a psychological thing in our minds that we have been taught that poor is more admirable. And the reason why is because we, can, we have more sympathy for that. Oh, if someone's poor, you automatically have my sympathy. And just so you know, that's not really the way that it should be. There are some people that are poor because they choose to be poor. There are some people that are poor because they have other problems that need to be taken care of, which make them poor, for instance. And there are people that are poor that love money and hate, and hate Jesus and totally break God's commandments that are poor. And there are rich people that love the Lord and uh, put faith in him and keep God's commandments. You can't, it, it's like judging someone by skin color. Um, why should I judge what kind of person you are or whether you're obedient to the Lord based on your skin color? One has nothing to do with the other, right? It just, it, it's apples and oranges. Same thing with wealth. You could be an evil, rich person according to the God's commandments. And I'm saying evil according to the new covenant, right? Well, you bre you've broken God's covenant. And you, dis you disbelieve on Jesus Christ and you're rich. And you could do the same thing and be poor. The amount of money you have in your pocket is an apples and oranges kind of comparison between whether you're obedient to God or not. Now, as if you continue in your obedience to the Lord, trust me, you, you have a very hard time staying poor because it produces fruit. When you accept the word of God and believe it, it produces fruit. Part of that fruit is power to get wealth. But nevertheless, you can't so, sort of judge a book by its cover, as they say. You can't look at someone poor and claim that they are good and look at someone rich and say that they're evil, and you can't do it the other way around either. You can't say a rich person is automatically good or has some kind of sympathy in your mind. Um, and it's unfortunate that we see people and we look sympathetically on a lot of poor people when there's a lot of poor people that don't want help and especially don't want help from the Lord. And it's not because they're poor. It's just because of the choices in their mind, the same way that it's a rich person's choice in their own mind whether to receive the Lord or whether to not receive the Lord as well. So our sympathies and our compassions cannot be directed by judging by the sight of our eyes and the hearing of our ears. We can't judge like that and judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, right? I just quote a few things from Isaiah and also from the Gospels there, from the book of John. Judge with righteous judgment. Judge correctly. And you know what? If I see, and this goes for rich or poor. If I see a poor person and I preach them the Gospel and they, have no, they want nothing to do with Jesus, that's an evil, evil person before, the, before God in this new covenant. Does that person deserve my sympathies for where they're at? Now, I love them, right? We should love everybody. But does that person deserve my sympathies as if they're a victim for where they're at right now when they don't want to know the Lord and couldn't care less about his, his name? No. There's a difference between loving someone and actually seeing them as being victimized in some way. That person willfully is willfully ignorant, as the Bible says, when it's chosen to reject Jesus, right? But the same thing goes for a rich person. If a rich person does the same thing, and willfully rejects Jesus, that, that person can't have my sympathies in the sense that, you know, somehow I see that they're a victim and they just don't know better. No, they willfully rejected Jesus. I told them the gospel, and they've willfully rejected Jesus. So both sides of this, being rich or being poor, is not a moral matter. And it's not a matter of morality when it comes to God's new covenant commandments either. It's apples and oranges, just as much as skin color or anything like that. It's silly stuff to judge people by, right? And, you know, I would venture to say, don't even judge person, a person by the content of their character, but by the contents in their brain, in their mind. That's how God judges each man according to his deeds. That's why I say he searches the hearts in Jeremiah 17. He searches the hearts and the inwards to give to every man according to his deeds. Mind deeds, right? But there are a lot of people that are doing evil in their mind toward the Lord. And what is that in this new covenant? That's just not believing Jesus. And being poor or being rich has nothing to do with whether you're doing right or wrong before God. Again, the only difference is that if you're poor and you're doing right before God, just don't plan on staying there. Okay? So that's the case. There is no inherent godliness in being rich or in being poor. It's just money. Right? Now, Colossians 2.23, I'll read it to you in the King James Version. Colossians 2.23, though, does warn us about people that will neglect their body, and we shouldn't look at someone that pure neglect of the body somehow looks godly to us. Because Colossians 2.23 says, which, ha which things indeed um, have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship or voluntary worship and humility. So it says it looks like wisdom in their voluntary worship and humility. It has a form. Basically what he's trying to say here is that um, there are things that appear to be wise or to be humble. 
And one of the, look, look what it says. It says, and neglecting of the body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Put, throw that in the New King James real quick. Because it's a little hard to understand in King James. What he actually says is that um, they have the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. That word false is not there. Self-imposed religion, humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Basically, what he's saying there is, it's a little, little off topic, that last part. But what he's saying is that um, they couldn't neglect their body and deprive themselves, but it says it's of no value against the indulgence or the lusts of the flesh. In other words, they haven't made themselves any more righteous. They still lust for the same things that everybody does apart from the Lord. You know, people can deprive themselves, but real transformation only comes from renewing your mind to Jesus. You can neglect your body, and you can deprive yourself of something, but he's saying you're not doing anything against the indulgence of the flesh. You've got the same lust in you until you receive Jesus, right? So anyway, but, but you, you notice how the, the neglect of the body has this show of I'm, I'm wise or I'm humble because I neglect myself. You know, people, I've heard people talk about the Pope, and oh, he just walks around. He's had the same shoes for 10 years or something. I don't know which Pope this was or who. Or, what the exact reference was. But it was something to the effect of like, somehow that's like admirable because he's had the same shoes for 10 years or he wears the same clothes or he takes the bus or he, like, whatever. There is automatically a sympathy that we give when we see poverty or, or sort of lack or deprivation even of, of any, in any such way, okay? Pope example aside, I'm only using that example because you can see how the immediate thing of like, that's godly because you've worn the same shoes for 10 years. Like it's just, boom, it's automatically godly. That person, just so you know, Catholicism has some crazy stuff that isn't even in the Bible, okay? You know, don't confess your sins to a man and yada, 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 right? There's one mediator between God and man, that's the man, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of stuff I can go into with Catholicism. I'm not saying all Catholics aren't saved, but man, that's some dangerous, that's a minefield of doctrine, okay, in the Catholic Church today. So let's just say you have somebody that, you know, is completely disobedient to the new covenant commandments of believing in Jesus and believing correctly on what Jesus has done for you, and you're, you're let's just say, theoretically, okay, I am putting this in a theoretical, you know, you, you're Mr. I've worn the same shoes for 10 years, but, and that somehow garners our sympathies despite the fact that you're a disobedient person to the gospel. Why should I, like, why should I be sympathetic toward that as if it were godly? Because, the, because this verse... Because when you neglect yourself and deprive yourself, again, you could be a monk, you could be into Hinduism and all this stuff, and, and, and I meditate, and I don't eat all day, and I just sit and I think, and I give to the poor, and I do all this stuff. But the thing is, when you neglect and deprive yourself, it's, and I said give to the poor, but again, if you deprive yourself, you're not going to be able to give to the poor anyway. But the deprivation looks humble, and it looks wise, but that's not what God calls wisdom. God, wisdom is not seen by how much money you have, Wisdom is not seen by, oh, I'm poor, so I'm wise and I'm humble. Humility is in your mind. Humility is a thing that the Bible says that, um, I could actually um, get you the verse, but it just, as far as humility is concerned, it just says think of yourself soberly. That, that no one should think of themselves more highly than they ought, but to think soberly. Um, I'll just give you the reference on that, just so you can look it up on your own time, but... Um, it's Romans 12, 3. You don't have to put that up there, but Romans 12, 3. It just says to not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think soberly. Humility is recognizing I have nothing of myself, Lord. I didn't do any of this for myself. We, have a, we should have a low estimation of our own strength apart from Jesus. A low opinion of it. Humble basically just means low, lowly. It's actually translated lowly a lot of times even in the Bible. So if I have a low opinion, a low esteem of myself apart from Jesus, which obviously we, we aren't without Jesus now, thank God, but if I have a low opinion of that, that means I'm humble, right? Uh, humble doesn't mean being poor. Again, one thing has nothing to do with Humility is a, is a state of mind. Meekness is a state of mind. Lowliness is a state of mind. It's your opinion of yourself apart from Christ. Now, I actually take pride in the power that I have right now. I take a lot of pride in the power and in the position that I have right now. But because I'm taking pride in boasting in Jesus, because I'm seated with him in heavenly place, and because I have his power now. So now I can boast in his power, which I'm, I possess now. But you see, so I shouldn't be humble in the sense that I have a low opinion of who I am in Christ. I'm not poor. I'm rich right now. I have everything Jesus has. Um, but that's what humility is. The Bible actually said that Moses was the most humble man in all of the earth. And it's funny, because he even wrote that, right? Which we would say that's, that's, that's not modest. He, in his own book, wrote that he was the most humble man on the earth. But he's just telling the truth. He's like, I'm the most humble guy in the entire earth. 
and he was the leader of a rich nation that actually just recently plundered the Egyptians and whom God also promised was going to multiply their goods. How much money you have in your pocket doesn't mean you're humble or you're obedient to God or you keep God's commandments or it's not inherently godly. Now, being poor is also not inherently immoral. It's just, it's just a matter, it's, it's, it's money, right? Can I tell you what is immoral, though? To not believe in the power to wealth. That's immoral. See, poverty is not immoral. You know what? Uh, the amount of money you have in your wallet or in your bank account is not, it's not a moral issue. Neither is it immoral, like we were saying a while ago, uh, any particular um, amount of money that you have, that's also not immoral if you have a lot of money. It's just money. But what is immoral, rich or poor, is to not believe in the power to wealth that the Lord gave you. Because listen, you say, well, okay, Pastor Mike, you're saying immoral, but there are worse things, right? I mean, because we, we would actually think this as, as a church, there are worse things than to not believe in power to wealth. Even if you're on my side with this, with this particular doctrine, there are worse things. There are people out there raping and pillaging and killing people, and you're saying that it's immoral to not believe. Okay, no, actually, the most immoral you think you can possibly do in this life is to not believe on what Jesus provided you. Because all the raping and pillaging and murder comes from people's hearts. The, the denial of what Jesus provided them. All immorality, external immorality, as far as actions, come from that one thing. God only gave one single commandment in this new covenant. That is to love him with your heart. That's the great commandment. But to translate it, that is, John 6 says, to believe in the one that God sent. One commandment. So you're going to tell me that somehow raping and pillaging and murder is more immoral than breaking the only commandment that God's given people in this new covenant? He only gave you one. It's like those old memes that it says, like, you know, uh, that you had one job. They would, they would, people still use that term sometimes. That's the way it is. Maybe you didn't rape and pillage and murder, but at the end of the age, if you say, God says you had one job, I, I just wanted you to get to know what I did for you, and you didn't do that, who's more immoral? The one who raped and pillaged and murdered, but then got to know Jesus and kept the commandment, or the one that never did those things and broke that commandment? That is the most immoral thing a person can possibly do is to deny the Son of God. Bar not. I mean, that, that, is, that is the most immoral thing. So when I present to you and I say, Jesus provided this to you, and you say, nope, don't need that, well, that's immoral. That is immorality right there. That is the definition of immorality and disobedience. That is actually the only thing that God would call disobedience in the New Testament. Um, so there's nothing inherently moral or immoral about poverty, but there is something, it is a moral issue, what you believe about poverty, what you believe that Jesus provided you or not. We need to believe the power that God's given us to get wealth because it's something that Jesus thought of before he ever came for you and went through pains to get it to you, okay? Let me show you a verse in, um, a few verses in Luke 6, 20. So, poverty is something that Jesus redeemed you from, right? He redeemed you from poverty. Or better said, the lack of power to get wealth. Having no power to get wealth, Jesus redeemed you from that today. That's something you have right now is redemption from poverty. You have that. Because Jesus did it for you, not because of anything you do. Anything you do. You can make all the wrong financial decisions in the past. You need to make one right financial decision to receive that, and that is to believe it. That's the only right financial decision that will lead to all the other financial decisions in the future. It's to believe what you've been given. He has redeemed you from poverty. Okay? He thought about that in his mind, planned on doing it, and accomplished it, and returned to the Father, um, having accomplished and prospered in the thing that God sent him to do. Redeemed you from that. To look, not be poor, not be poor, not, not having lack of money, but to believe that poverty is somehow admirable, or is somehow right, or could even possibly be a part of God's will for you, is immoral, and God still loves you. But I'm, I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong in this new covenant. That's wrong. To deny that truth. Now, some, some of us, right, do believe certain things in ignorance. There's a lot of things that we believe just because we haven't been taught it yet, but, you know, we haven't learned it yet. That's fine. But when someone presents you the truth and says, here it is, and then you push that away, that's a different kind of ignorance. Now, that's willful ignorance because I was presented the truth and I didn't want the truth. Totally different there, okay? Nevertheless, not believing 
or rather believing that poverty is somehow admirable, it socially should be socially somehow acceptable or acceptable to God in certain scenarios. Maybe it's good for you. Maybe it'll build your character. Maybe blah, 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 blah. Under no circumstances, at no point in time, in this age or in the one to come, is not having enough actually admirable. Ever. Under any circumstances. It's not immoral either, but it's not something that God wants for you. There's a big difference between saying, oh, I don't feel well today. It's not a moral issue if you don't feel well. It's not a moral issue. And you haven't broken the commandments of God because, oh, but Jesus provided healing. Right. That was a gift to you. It's not a moral issue if you don't feel good. Receive the gift. It's living on the inside of you as a believer. It's not a moral thing. But again, the, 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 the view that people have of poverty, that all of a sudden, again, we're going to watch a movie, and then poor guy is always the, the good guy. That comes from something, right? Because every single person hearing me probably knows, if you've seen a single movie or TV show, knows that that is usually the case. That's how it's portrayed. But the thing is, here's what's, what's, what's wrong. When that gets into your psyche, and it gets into your mind, and you actually have some kind of view of poor guy good, rich guy bad, when God's saying, actually, I've given you the power to get wealth because we need to do something here on this earth, well, that's fighting. That's, a, that's an exalted... Uh, uh, knowledge that has raised itself up against the knowledge of God, and Lord say, I want to break that stuff down. It's not the way that it should be, should be perceived. Part of this problem is the misinterpretation of so many scriptures, because check this out. God, you're going to think at first that I'm contradicting everything I just said. God speaks very fondly of the poor in the New Covenant, even in the Old Testament. Very fondly of the poor. And you may say, well, what's going on here? Well, obviously we'll answer that question. Most of you guys already know where I'm coming from anyway, but Luke 6.20 Jesus lifts his, his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's like God speaks very fondly about these quote-unquote poor people many times. And you're like, well, doesn't this just kind of feed into that mentality of poverty is somehow maybe admirable? The neglect of the body, the deprivation of ourselves is somehow means I'm godly or means that it's wise or means that it's humble to do that? He says, blessed be the poor. He said it. Blessed be the poor. Stay with me, obviously. This is not the punchline here. 20, verse 21. And blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. And blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. He goes through a whole bunch of other things here. Let's just jump to verse uh, 24. But woe unto you that are rich. Woe is like a, like a warning, right? Uh, woe unto you that are rich, for you've received your consolation. In verse 25, woe unto you that are full, for you, sh you shall hunger. And woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Another verse here, Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the New King James Version. Isaiah 61, verse 1, New King James, just because New King James uh, is a little bit easier to understand here. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The, the, the me there is this Jesus speaking. Right? It's being prophesied of Jesus speaking this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Specifically to the poor. Like Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. Um, there's more I could read about that but like the, the, to finish the verse. But to preach the gospel to the poor. Luke 6 says, blessed are the poor. And actually he takes it a step further and says, woe unto you that are rich. So it's like warning that, oh, if you're rich, you're going to hunger. And if you're poor, somehow that's a good thing to God in these verses, right? Right? Because he says, blessed are the poor, and Jesus came to preach good tidings to the poor. All right. Let's, let's go with that for a second, right? Let's go with this, with this line of thinking. Because there are some people that will look at that and just think that's talking about money. Clearly, obviously, to, to give you that hint, it's not talking about money. And I mean, I'm not saying that. I will show you verses that literally say that it's not talking about money, like verbatim. Um, but let's, let's run with it then. Let's run with it. If we want to play the game kind of in the church, which is, is, a, is a dangerous game to play, uh, when the Lord talks about giving us power to get wealth, and then we want to kind of look admirably on, on poverty, like it's something maybe to be desired, or something that can build your character, something that could be of some benefit to you, possibly. Because the second you entertain that stuff, if you think poverty is somehow good, then why would we ever put it past God to maybe make you poor? If poverty could build your character, right? If poverty could make you maybe more patient, and it wasn't actually like the Bible says that patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of your wealth, 
right? But let's say, if poverty really did build your character, why wouldn't God make you poor sometimes? And once your character was built enough, then you can handle money properly, because that's what people will tell you. Why wouldn't he? But you see, it all starts with this fondness of looking on physical poverty. And as I said before, these verses are not talking about physical poverty, monetary poverty. But let's say it was. Even if you wanted to run with that line of thinking and say, uh, I'm going to go to Isaiah 55 so you can get that cued. Even if you wanted to say, well, maybe that is talking about poverty, that only the poor can receive blessing from God. Because he said, blessed are the poor. Warning to the rich, blessed are those that are poor. Maybe it is talking about that only the poor, only the poor have some special blessing from God. Well, let's run with your line of thinking then. How poor do you have to be to get that blessing? If that really were the case. Because it says, blessed are the poor. And Jesus came to give good, there's some special good news that Jesus has for the poor. Even if that we're talking about monetary poverty, how poor do you really have to be to receive this blessing? The Bible says how poor you have to be. I'm going to get to the punchline. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse uh, 1. It says, uh, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. Waters is talking about his spirit. Just saying, that's a symbol for his spirit. So he says, come to my spirit. And he that has no money, no money, come you buy and eat. If you want to eat, that's talking about receiving from God. If you want to receive from his spirit, eating from the waters is a symbol of receiving from the spirit. We've been through that in the past. You have to have zero money, no money. So when it says blessed are the poor, that's talking about blessed are those who have zero money. Everyone's disqualified. Every single person has had money and physical wealth at some point or, point, uh, or, or another. The kind of poverty that God is saying that he blesses is blessed are the poor. Well, how poor? God says zero money, no money. So even if you wanted to kind of play that game and make it monetary, you're going to have a hard time achieving that because you have to have zero money. And obviously we'd be dead if we didn't have any wealth whatsoever. Um, I was even just going as far as our life in the past. So I think we can see, okay, he's not talking about physical poverty because everybody would be dead if they had no money. Everybody would be apart from Jesus because you, would, you wouldn't be able to get saved yet. You would have been a baby. And if someone didn't have money to spend on you, your life wouldn't have lasted very long. Your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. So, you kind of get that hint already. Can't be talking about physical po uh, poverty because that is impossible. That only those who have no money can actually receive from God. So, let, let's go back to, uh, let's go to um, Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the, it's just, you know that Luke 6, we just read about blessed are the poor and blessed are those that hunger. This is the exact same account, but in a different gospel. So same account, different gospel. Matthew 5.3, it says, Matthew 5.3, he says, blessed are the poor again, but he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So clearly already we, are, we know he's not talking about monetary poverty here. Because he says, he, he, he translates and gives clarification on the other gospel. The other gospel just didn't say in spirit. Here, he clarifies and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You, can you see that immediately? Now, if you knew already that the Lord had given you power to get wealth, and you understood that according to Deuteronomy 28, uh, uh, power to get wealth is a blessing. Being plenteous in goods is a blessing from God. And even under the law, we're not, you know, there is no such thing as the curse of the law anymore. That, that ended, you know, 2,000 years ago. But even under the law, poverty and not having the ability to get wealth was used as a curse. Okay? God calls not having ability to get wealth a bad thing so much so that he used it as a curse in the Old Testament for people that broke the law. And we're over here saying, well, maybe it'll be good for me. Maybe it'll build character if I have to do it, you know, if I, have to be, if I have to start out poor, maybe God wants me to start out poor so I can build my character or something. We have to see, like, this should be pretty easy from the Bible to tell. Poverty bad, wealthy in the right way, good in the right way, if God adds it, if God adds it. But man, here you see very clearly in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're not sure of what that means, poor in spirit, spirit is um, seemingly predominantly used for that like our inner person, like uh, maybe not the best terminology there, but the, the, the unseen person inside of us, right? That your body has a spirit, you know? Um, and even like the Bible said that, uh, uh, the, how does it say? 
the body uh, the body is dead without the spirit right, in, in James. So like it can come out of the body, right? It's like this person inside of your flesh. Uh, that's your spirit. This is not talking about that kind of spirit. Spirit can sometimes be used for your mind because you don't have to put that up there, but Ephesians 4.23 says to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I don't really know the definition of the word spirit. That's as much as I know, is that it can sometimes be used for mind. Who knows, maybe the word spirit means unseen, in which it would apply to both. I, I'm not sure, because uh, you can't see your mind either. But So you have a body, you have a mind, and you have a spirit. Or, or sometimes said body, soul, instead of mind and spirit. Or your body and your heart and your spirit. Right? But sometimes the word spirit can be used for, as Ephesians 4, the spirit of your mind. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who realize that they're poor who understand that they are poor. And I'll explain even that in a second. But he's saying, when he says poor in spirit, he's saying poor in mind. Poor in mind. That's what he's saying according to, if you interpret that through Ephesians 4.23. Poor in your mind. And then when he says bless those that hunger, he's not saying that somehow there's a special blessing for people if you deprive yourself of food. And you know, if you want to hear about fasting, listen to our, our, our article on fasting. Go on our website, open the search in the, in the menu, and type fasting. And you'll see an article on fasting. And trust me, Fasting is not what you think it is. You know what? I'll say this much. Not eating for a period of time doesn't bring you any closer to God. Okay? The way that you handle meat and drink is not a part of the kingdom of God, and it doesn't benefit you as being a part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't make you any closer to God. It doesn't improve your knowledge. You know, there's so much I can say about that. I won't say too much because I just want you to read the article if you're interested on that. Um, but anyway, so I'll get off the fasting thing, but I encourage you to read that. Um, physical deprivation doesn't affect your mind. And when he says hunger, blessed are those that hunger, in Luke 6, Matthew 5 interprets that as saying, actually, blessed are those that hunger after righteousness. All right? Let's go back to Isaiah 55. I'm going to have to, well, we, we, we actually have plenty of time left. But Isaiah 55, let, let's continue reading Isaiah 55. So let's explain this a little further. What he's actually talking about is, right, poverty. Blessed are those who realize that they are poor. And blessed are those that hunger and thirst, who are not righteous, but desire righteousness, right? That's what he's saying. Blessed are those who realize that they are poor. That's what poor in spirit, poor in mind. Whose minds realize that they are poor, and blessed are those who are not righteous, but desire to be righteous. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those people. All right. This starts making a little bit more sense, right? Because again, if you know power to wealth, and you read blessed are those that are poor, you should kind of already know there's probably a different interpretation of that than what people are telling me. Um, Isaiah 55, let's go to verse 1 again. So he says, um, everyone that thirsts, he said, that comes to the waters, that means come to his spirit, and you that have no money, and that word money is actually silver, that's actually significant, but those that have no money or silver, come you buy and eat, yea, come, and buy wine and milk without money and without price. So he's saying, if you don't have any money, you can come and receive from me because I'm not going to charge you anything. So what is this money he's referring to? If we can define the word money here properly, uh, then we can define what poverty is, because poverty just means not having money, right? So let's find out what money means here. Verse 2 says, Wherefore, or, or why, do you spend money? Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? There's actually a little bit more depth I've been seeing about this recently, but let's just give you a real general kind of idea. This is not the absolute definition, symbolically, of the word money or the word silver, in the Bible, but it certainly has something to do with labor, all right? Spending money um, is equated here with spending your labor, because you'll notice in verse 2, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfies not? You can see he's using it sort of synonymously there with labor, and I have a lot more, uh, uh, I have further backing. I just couldn't do a message on this right now. This is also why, because money is equated with, or rather spending money is, is equated with labor, in the Bible, this is why I've taught this in the past in the Yet Not I series, that on the Sabbath, you are not biblically allowed to spend money. You're not allowed to do trade or buy anything and spend money on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is a day of what? Rest. In fact, the word Sabbath means rest. So why wouldn't you be able to spend money on a day of rest? Because money in the Bible is symbolic of, or spending money is symbolic of labor. So when he says, you who have no money, he's saying, you who have no ability to labor whatsoever. You can't do a darn thing for me anyway, but guess what? I'm not charging. It's free. You, I'm not charging you any labor. You don't got to do some work, even out of principle. You don't have to do some work because it's a secret principle of God that's going to achieve you some kind of blessing from the windows of heaven. No work required. 
Jesus did all the work that the Father ever needed to bless you, so let's just thank Jesus and take the gift for free. That's how it works. But you see, money, clearly he's not talking about real money here. And as, I say real money. He's not talking about physical money here. You who have no money, the people, only the people that have no money are the people that are able to receive from God. And I'll explain that to you in a second. But money here is referring to actually, or rather spending of money is symbolically referring to spending your labor. So when we are poor in spirit and realize that we are poor, meaning when we realize we're poor in spirit and we realize that we have no money, you know what that means? It's only the people that realize that they can't do anything for God whatsoever that are able to receive from him. Because God's gifts are free through Jesus. The person that wants to work for the Lord, quote unquote, spend money. The person that thinks they're rich, has some kind of ability to do something for God, will never receive from God. Because grace is not of work. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God has given everything that he provided to us by grace, not by work. Not just because it's grace and just because, you know, that's it. But because Jesus paid for something, so you don't have to. So if you come to God with money to spend, we went through in our Joseph timeline, we went through this as well, right? Joseph's brothers. Joseph is a symbol of Jesus. His brothers symbolize the Jewish people. And every time his brethren came to him, they wanted to offer him money for bread. And you know what Joseph did? He turned them away and gave them their money back. You see, because that's the way that it works. God doesn't want your money. Labor. He doesn't want your labor. You need to realize first that you're poor. You can't work for God or do anything from God. Wait, that sounds a little bit like John chapter 14. Apart from him, we can do labor nothing. Do nothing means no money to spend in the Bible. That's what that means. Poverty in the Bible, when it's talking about that Jesus came to preach the good, good tidings to the poor, he's saying, I came to preach to people that can't do anything for me. They have no money to spend. They have no labor to give. They have no gift to bring, right? Like little drummer boy style. You don't have a gift to bring. You don't have any drum to drum. You have nothing of any value to give to God, but that's all right. Jesus did. His own flesh he gave to God as a payment for your redemptions, for your ransom, for your protection, for etc., etc., etc. Jesus gives this all to you now as grace because of the price that he paid. So when it talks about the poor, this is not talking about monetarily. And like I said, and if it were talking about monetarily, we're all, I won't say the word I was thinking about, but we're all, uh, what's the right word for the S-C-R-E-W word? Uh, we're all uh, unfortunate <laughs> because everybody has physical money. And he says only the ones that don't have any money can come to him. Obviously, he's not talking about physical money. And the poverty is not talking about physical poverty. It's talking about those that are poor in spirit who realize that they have no labor to give God for what they're receiving. That's what it's talking about. And you see all through the Bible, God speaks very fondly of the poor. I came for the poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those that hunger. Blessed are those that don't have but want it from me. Blessed are those that hunger, don't have righteousness, but desire it from me because I will give them righteousness freely. It's a gift of righteousness. But the thing is, if you're willing to work for righteousness, Jesus ain't your guy. Because he set up his marketplace and says, come buy and eat without any money. So if you've got money to spend, go to a different market. Go to the law and get your righteousness from that market. But you're not going to get it from the Jesus market because it's free here. So you see, Jesus only came for those that have no money because he came to provide a free product. But if you're the one that wants to spend the money for your righteousness, if you don't think you actually hunger for righteousness, you think that you can achieve it for yourself, then go to the law and get it. If you think you can achieve it for yourself. If you're not poor enough, to, to, to need, to, out of necessity, to, re, to, to receive a free gift, then go get it from the law and go work for God and go, go bring him your tithes and your offerings and go ahead and bring it into the storehouse and then get your blessing. Go ahead and pay for it. That's what it is. Go pay for your blessing then. Go ahead and show God what a good steward of your wealth you are and then get your blessings over there by the law. If you want to, you know, be protected, just make sure you don't step out of the will of God first. Don't step out of the will of God. Oh, Wrong step, oh, and the bad things happen, right? Because we step out of God's protection when we, when we do wrong things. So if you want to achieve your protection by staying in the will of God and doing the right thing, go get it from the law. But you see, the, 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 the Jesus market is only for those that have no money. If you can't do anything, you see, this is why blessed are the poor, because it's only those that realize, I got nothing to give you, Lord, that are actually willing to receive it. Who, whoever would receive a free gift of righteousness if they thought that they were able to achieve it themselves. They wouldn't. Whoever would just believe the Lord for power to get wealth if they thought their tithe was doing it just fine. So keep tithing then. See how that works for you. See how that works for you. 
at the end of the age, you'll realize that tithe was nothing. Tithe is only profitable to you if you keep the whole law. That's what the book of Romans says. I think it's chapter 2. Not about tithe, but about circumcision. Circumcision is only profitable to you if you keep the whole law. Just because you gave a tithe doesn't mean anything. You break, you, you're breaking the law left and right. You've got to keep the whole law. Jesus is only for those that have no money. And that money is referring, the spending of it is referring to labor. Now, again, there's more I can learn about the symbolic nature of what silver means in the Bible and spending it, what that means. But in Isaiah 55, that's what he's referring to. Why are you spending your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Poverty, the poverty that God looks fondly on are those that realize they have no ability in and of themselves and realize that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Not some, you see? Because if you only say some, well, we can do certain things, so you think you got a little bit of money. There's a little cash in your pocket still. There's a little bit there. I could do this, though. And I could be nice to somebody, and then, you know, you know whatever comes around goes around. Or whatever goes around comes around, however you say that. I'm so unfamiliar with that unbelief that I don't even know how to say the thing right. If you think you've got a little money in your pocket, oh, I can just do a little bit for God, though. I can still do this, though. I can still do that. No, you can do nothing of value. When you realize you can do nothing of value of yourself, of yourself. Now, I'm not talking about we're well able in Christ. I got the power of God. I'm well able to do anything. You know, man, that changes the way even you go to your job. I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? But I'm referring to just my own ability apart from Jesus. That is utterly poor. Utterly poor. Zero money. I got zero money in my ability bank account. Nothing. I have no labor to spend. I have no labor. Nothing I could ever do for God or on his behalf for the world. Nothing at all. I got nothing to say. I've got nothing to say to anybody. I got nothing to do. I got no hand to lay on anyone. I have nothing. All I can do is believe what Jesus provided me in the expectation that that will work out through me and make a difference in my life and somebody else's. I got nothing. Nothing to do for God. God says, that guy, he's blessed because he comes and says, Lord, you're offering something for free? Good. I didn't have any money anyway. I believe you. I believe what you did for me. That poor person who can't do labor anything is going to be blessed by God if they hunger and thirst for it. In other words, they don't have it themselves, but they desire it from the Lord. Now, we have righteousness now, so we're not hungry and thirsty for righteousness anymore, right? Um, we don't have any thirst anymore, any needs anymore. We, we, we're replete, but uh, we recognize that power and that righteousness and all that stuff that we have is not of ourselves. It's of the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's something that Jesus did for us, not something that we did for him. Or, or out of principle, you know, that there was some kind of dependency on anything that we did. Um, James 4.6. James 4.6. This explains exactly what I was just saying. You have to realize you will not receive anything from God if you think that you can do something of yourself. Now, again, there's a fine line between saying Joshua and Caleb saying, I'm well able. I'm well able. That's someone who knows who they are in Christ. You shouldn't understand. You got power and might on the inside of you to produce wealth in this world. That's something you need to know. So there's nothing wrong with saying you're well able. It's just what you're referring to, right? What are you referring to? You say, well, Abel, you're saying, yeah, because I have the power of God infused into my born-again spirit, which means I'm full of power to get wealth or for anything. Well, Abel. Uh, but there are a lot of people that won't say they're well able of their flesh, but actually do believe that there's, well, there's still things, Pastor, what, if this sounds familiar. Well, Pastor, there's still things that we need to do for God, though. Still, or, or even if it's not for God. Okay, let's not even say that. But Pat, there's still things we have to do, though. Can you do anything of value? <laughs> that's, that's the question, right? That is, that is the question. That's the question of the uh, century, of the, of the millennium of history. Can you do anything of value? Because, <laughs> uh, oh, there's still things we have to do, you know, for the kingdom. And Okay. You couldn't say that unless you thought that, again, you've got some money in your pocket to do something, to spend. You have some labor that you could do for God. In the New Covenant, we believe the Holy Spirit works through us. The only valuable things that you'll ever see in your life are the things the Holy Spirit produces through you, period. So let's get to renewing our mind and be transformed by the Spirit. Simple as that, right? James 4, 6 says that, but he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble, unto the lowly. You see, only those that are lowly, how low, realize that they have nothing. You see, you have to say how low. 
nothing, zero, no money to spend. Only those, God gives grace only to the humble. Why? Because he's not providing a product that has a price tag. So you can't spend money, like I said before, at the Jesus marketplace. So therefore, it's only fitting for the lowly, for those that have no money to spend. And that's what he's saying here. Gives grace unto the humble doesn't mean I only give grace to those that, you know, are somehow monetarily poor or somehow they deprive themselves. Humility is an opinion in your mind, right? Also called poor in spirit, poor in your mind that realize, now again, as born-again believers, our mind shouldn't realize that we are poor because we're not anymore. But you do have to realize that all the riches that you have in Christ are because of him and not because of you. But our own ability, if we were to go out and just start working for God, that ability is poor. The effort that we exert for God is poor. There's nothing of value, no labor of any value going on there. And that's why he said that God only gives grace to the humble, because you have to have a low opinion of yourself to receive a free gift. You have to realize, you know what, Lord, I'm going to take the free gift. I, I, I don't have anything to give you in return. If it's free, that's for me. That's why he says he resists the proud. It's not because God doesn't love everybody. But the proud are contrary to him. The proud are those that say, oh, I, I can give this, you know, in order to get this from God. I can do this in order to get this from God. And again, I can do the right thing, which is going to keep the protection of God over me. I can do this with my finances or give this amount. And if I give, it's going to come back to me. And I understand all the, all the verses. And I understand all the stuff. You just listen to our giving and tithing article online for more on that. But, man, when you think that you, you, there's something that you can give, that's pride. How is that pride? To say you want to do something for God. Isn't that just loving God? I just want to do something for God. The pride is found in this. You think you can do something. That's where the pride exists. That's where the arrogance exists. Some people may have the best of intentions and say, I just want to do something nice for God today. Here's the thing. How could someone who can do nothing apart from Jesus, if you really believe that, do something for God? That's the question there. And that's therefore where the pride lies. We say both things. We say... Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Apart from him doing something through me and producing the fruitfulness by me just believing him, I can't do a thing for God. I can't do a thing for anybody. I can't do anything of actual eternal value unless the Lord does it through me. And then all over here, <laughs> we'll all amen to that. And on the other side, well, let's do, I just do something for God, do something for the kingdom. That's where the pride lies because you simply are not of the opinion. You don't have a low opinion of yourself so much so that it would hinder you from saying, uh, I can't do any, or, or that I'm going to do something for God. If you say you want to do something for God, it's because you think you have something to give. That's, that's the way that it is. If you, didn't, if you didn't think you had anything to give, you wouldn't try offering it to God, right? Or to anybody else for that matter. You'd be like, thank you, Jesus, for everything you did for me. I'm just going to renew my mind to that. That's how that works. Um, let's just close with this. So anyway, if it's not already clear, the poverty that God speaks sort of uh, fondly of is someone that has a low estimation of their own ability apart from him. Because he says, hey, that's right. You believe the truth then if you believe that. Now, it's not good enough to just say, you know, I have a low opinion of my own ability apart from Jesus. That's not good enough. The law could tell you that much. Actually, the, the law was given. You know, we just read about God gives grace to the humble. This is why God actually had to give the law of works. Is because people, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, I won't teach on it right now, the Bible actually says that people were, they stopped putting faith in Jesus. The Jews at the time, were, were, they fell up away from the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they weren't believing Jesus anymore. And so they thought they could do something for God, and it's actually evident from the foot of Mount Sinai that day that they said, whatever God commands us, we're well able to do. Well, okay, that's, that's some pride there. You got some pride going on there. And it was because they thought they could offer something to God, and they fell away from just putting faith in what Jesus was about to do for them, that God had to give the law, because God had to make, if, if only the humble and only the poor will receive from God, only those that realize they can do nothing for God will actually come to God and receive a free gift. Then God has to make sure that these people were poor in their own estimation before they were ever going to receive from him. So they said, we can do anything you know, uh, that you require of us, Lord. God's okay, let's try that. Let's try that your way then. Gave them the rules that they wanted to try to disprove their arrogance in saying that they could do anything for God. That's why God had to give the law, to try to humble people in their own eyes, to try to save them from death. <laughs> But the law is, was, so the law was meant to humble people and realize, wow, that's such a high standard, I can't even live by it. I need to run to Jesus. It was, it was a schoolmaster, a tutor, to try to push us to put faith in Jesus. But 
All this to say, that's a lot of information, but all this to say that only the humble receive from the Lord. And that's why God had to give the law. Because the law humbled people. But it's not good enough just to have a low estimation of your own ability. The point here is we need to believe what Jesus did for us and receive what Jesus did for us, right? And understand that it is free. Okay, that, that's, that's the most important part here. Let me read you one more passage. Mark 10. I'm going to make a couple, a couple points with this, and then, and then we're going to close. Um, Mark 10, verse 17. This is the rich young ruler. So I just want to clarify a couple other things about poverty in general here. Mark 10, 17 says, uh, When he had gone forth into the way, there, was one, uh, 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 there came one running, and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he's already thinking that there's something he can do for God so he can inherit eternal life. So Jesus says, well, if you want to work for God, here are all the commandments. You know, you got to do all the commandments, uh, which is a great answer, obviously. He's like, if you want, to, you want to work for God, well, he gave the commandments, and then this guy says, oh, I've already done all that, which obviously is not true, but that's what he said, the rich young ruler. And then uh, Jesus says uh, in verse 21, back to him, he says, then Jesus beholding him, loved him, obviously like anything Jesus would ever tell us, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, one thing thou lack, uh, go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and take up your cross and follow me. Again, there are a lot of people that might even look at that and be a little confused, because Jesus said, in order to um, be his disciple, in order to follow him, uh, this man had to give up everything that he had, as if Jesus were actually asking him to like physically give his money that he had to the physically poor, that that's what he's asking. Um, here's the thing. I've heard a lot of people, even, even when I was little, I remember s- saying, uh, I remember hearing people say, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really asking him to give up everything he had. He was just sort of testing him to see if he would do it. N- no, no, actually, he's not even talking about depriving yourself and being monetarily poor here. He's actually not talking about that. And the Bible explains this, okay? So let's take a quick rabbit trail, because Jesus does say, look at the wording first. He says, sell whatever you have, Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, take up your cross, and follow me. Verse 22 says, and he, and he was sad. The rich man was sad at his saying. He went away grieved, for he had, uh, he had great possessions. He thought Jesus was telling him, just sell all your stuff, and then you're not going to have anything. People, again, may look at this whole thing in verse 21 and be confused at that. Why would Jesus ask that? Because it's these little verses that people use that... Just try to get a little edge in your mind to think, maybe there's something about poverty that maybe might be good for him temporarily. Or maybe, you know, like those little things that creep in. So Luke 14, let's look at Luke 14. Luke 14 is the sort of translation of what Jesus was telling the rich man. Right? And we, well, I'm just going to finish the, this, this, uh, uh, this, this point here, and then, and then we're done. But Luke 14, 26, it says, um, If any man come to me and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sister, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So that's, the word hate there, I understand, uh, we actually went over this verse earlier in the series. The word hate, I don't fully understand the word hate, but I do know the word hate doesn't mean what people take it to mean. I just can't explain all that right now. Um, but let's just say forsake, okay? Let's say forsake, uh, or, or be apart from, because, and you'll see why I'm saying that in a second. Uh, if anyone does not leave, let, let's even use that word. Leave his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and his own life also. He can't be my disciple. So this is not just Jesus telling, talking to one rich man. This is pe- Jesus talking to people in general, first of all. And he's not talking about just giving away money. He's talking about giving, leaving everything. Your father, your mother, your children. He's saying, you, if you want to be my disciple, you have to leave everybody behind. Then he goes on and says in verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, it's the same thing he told the rich man. You see that? The similar terminology? To bear your cross, which is actually talking about dying. Won't go into that right now, but he's actually talking about dying. Uh, and, and come after me. Um, he says if he doesn't do that, he can't be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you, building a tower, doesn't sit down first and count the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? He goes over some comparisons here, so I'm going to skip for the sake of time, and go all the way down to verse 32. So he's saying, if you want, basically what his point is, when he says count the cost there, his point is, if you want to be my disciple, you need to count the cost first. You need to see what it's going to cost you. And you'd be like, wait, hold on a second. I thought you just said it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to pay God anything to receive from him. You, you don't have to pay God anything. But there is something that you're going to end up sacrificing, though. 
if you want to be Jesus' disciple. He said, it's your father, your mother, your, all, all these different things. He said, and even your own life. You're going to have to sacrifice those things, and I'm going to explain that right now. He says, verse 33, verse 33, so likewise, whoever he be of you that forsakes not, you see, forsake not, so he says, hate your father and mother, there's some meaning there of leaving, forsaking. Whoever does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So you see, this is not unique to the rich young ruler that he said, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then follow me. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. He's actually saying this to everybody. He's saying whoever. It doesn't matter. This applies to everybody. Everybody has to forsake and leave everything that they have in order to be my disciple, including your family. He said your own life also. And everything that you have in this world, you need to leave it all behind if you want to be my disciple. The point is, which we've already addressed earlier in this series, that this is what is called being redeemed from the earth. Okay? When you get saved, you are redeemed from this present evil age, Galatians 1, verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. That's what that says. So if you want to get saved, all Jesus is saying is, as long as you're okay with being separated from this corruptible world and everything that's in it, because you're not going to be a part of it anymore. Now, obviously, when you see it that way, because that is what he's talking about, because that's what he means by giving up everything that you have. There's so much more I could actually give you to prove this point, which we already went over a little bit in the earlier parts of the series, but that is what he's talking about, because he's not talking about even just giving your money. He's saying you have to leave everything. Even unsaved relatives, when you get saved, God separates you from them, cuts you off from them. It doesn't mean you never talk to them, and you know, there's more we could say about that. This doesn't mean you never talk to them, or you know, somehow you, you, you're separated from them, like you live in a bubble and you don't talk to anyone that's not saved. That's not what he's saying, but you have left them. You have forsaken them. So he's saying, just so you know, if you want to keep the unity with all of your unsaved friends that don't even want to receive from God, if you want to keep that unity, and you want to keep a unity with this whole corruptible earth and all the evil in this age, you're not going to want to receive me because I, I came to overcome this world. And anyone that puts faith in Jesus has also overcome this world and become redeemed from it. Now, if you like the evil of this age, and if you, if you desperately want to keep unity with all your family and friends and all the people, you want everybody to like you, don't get saved. <laughs> because when you get saved, you're a part of a different country. You're going to start talking different, acting different. And when that start, starts coming out, people are not going to recognize you anymore. And they're not going to like that because you're not running into the same things they're running into. They're running this way. You're running this way. And that's why you got to be careful with relationships as far as unsaved people. Why? Because when someone runs this way and you're running this way, not a good match. You know why? Because you've been redeemed from them. And that's why wealth is not something God gives you, but actually has redeemed you from. So when he's, now granted, he's sort of talking sort of figuratively to the rich young ruler by saying, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because my understanding of that is obviously give away everything you have because that's being redeemed from the earth and give it to the poor, meaning and leave it for the people in the world. That's genuine. When you interpret it from this passage, the fact that Jesus doesn't just say it to the rich young ruler, but he says, you have to forsake everything you have. And that's not just talking about money. It includes money, but you're going to have to leave wealth. You're going to have to leave the entire planet, and you're going to have to leave all the people that belong to it. Everything you have, that's what being redeemed from the earth is. It's forsaking everything you have and leaving it all behind. Again, it's not talking about socially. It's talking because, you know, if, if unsaved family members are going to get saved, there is, to some degree, a means by which we should be speaking to them to tell them the truth. But nevertheless, you're redeemed from them. You are redeemed from them. You have a new family now, a heavenly family now. So anyway, that's what he's talking about, and that's what he was referring to. So when Jesus, he wasn't testing the rich young ruler like he was sort of kidding. He really meant it. Unless you give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple. And he just walked away and was sad because he thought Jesus was telling him to make a donation. And Jesus would say, no, you're going to be redeemed from all this stuff. And if you trust in your goodness and in your righteousness, and if you trust in all the riches of this world, you're going to have a problem because I'm, I'm going to redeem you from it. If you love the things in this world, you can't be Jesus' disciple. Because if you're loving the thing that he's going to redeem you from, it's not a good match between you and Jesus then. Everyone understand that? That's what he's saying here. It's everything. It's not some things. It's not, we'll give most of your money away. It's not, we'll give up some of your unsaved family members or some of your, no. There's a separation that happens when you first get saved, and it's a redemption from the entire earth. Um, so let's go back to, to and I'm going to close right here. 
in, it, let's go back to Mark 10 and just finish up the last, just like two or three verses there in, in, in Mark. Mark 10. We left off at verse 23. So I, that's the explanation of the first half of that. That's what Jesus was telling the rich young ruler. All right. Now let's, let's read verse 23. I'm going to make a different point with this, but it's just worth finishing up the, the little passage here. Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, after the rich young ruler left, so how hardly, how hard, shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Which again, even you look at that and say, well, oh, that's automatically saying if you're rich, then you, you, you can't enter the kingdom. Um, verse 24, he is talking about physical riches here. In verse 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered and said again, uh, uh, answered again and said unto them, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches? Which is that clarification. Who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Because he's referring, obviously, in specific to the rich man that came to him, trusted his own goodness, and clearly trusted his own riches as well. And Jesus does give a clarification that says, what I mean is, those that trust in riches, how hard is it for them to enter the kingdom of God? Because then, you're going to have to give up all these things. You're going to have to give up wealth and not see it as something that's your own. See, so, see it as something that God wants you to be in possession of, to use it, but it's like, you know what? You get to leave the whole world behind. He says it's very hard for people uh, who trust in the things of this world to enter the kingdom of God because you're going to have to give all these things up. So anyway, it's the, it's the trust, obviously, that is the problem. And just so you know, just I know this is a slightly different point, but I kind of want to leave you with this, that 1 Timothy 6.17 also explains the same thing that Jesus just explained there, uh, that it's not riches, as we started this message out. Riches is not what's immoral. Neither is poverty immoral or moral. 1 Timothy, when it comes to riches, in general, as Jesus just said, it's trusting in riches. That's the problem. And that's why there are a lot of rich people that don't want to come to the Lord because they, feel, because they trust in the riches that they have and they believe that there is somehow some kind of gain that they are receiving from that wealth. And therefore, again, when you feel that you, in any scenario, if you think you are morally competent, you won't receive God's righteousness and morality. If you feel that you are protected because you have a lot of money, you won't want to receive protection from God. You see, so it's in any scenario. Riches is just one of those things that you can trust in, that when you do trust in those things, it, it, it's, you see no need to come to the Lord and receive from him. Okay, so, but it is the trust in riches that's the problem, not having the riches itself. And this is why Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, charge them that are rich in this world, not that they give it all away, uh, but it says that they be not high-minded. That's the problem there. Nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. We hope you enjoyed this message from Reformed Church. If you have, please share this with someone else and help us get this unpopular message to the world. If you'd like to support Reformed Church, you can do so at reforminus.com give. Also on our website, you can take advantage of our free messages, articles, and even full discipleship courses. Start reforming your mind now at reforminus.com.